We're in the last week uh, of a series on the enigmatic Old Testament character Samson. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to the book of Judges, uh, chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. I'll meet you there in a moment for this, our last sermon on the life of Samson. There's a very famous poem written in the first half of the 20th century, which if you are into poetry, you're probably familiar with, but even if you're not, don't fear. Current cultural references to this poem abound. The British show uh, Doctor Who, the movie Interstellar a couple years ago, just to name a few, have referred to this poem. The poem was written by the celebrated poet Dylan Thomas, and I want to see if you're familiar with this refrain, some of you. It says, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Anybody familiar with that? It's been suggested that Thomas wrote that poem for his dying father. It's not known for certain that that is true. It is, though, clearly, an expression of the normal human attitude toward death. That death is a monstrosity to be resisted. The human impulse is to live. We want to last. Death is an enemy. Now, at the risk of of pushing too many historical literature references, uh, long before Dylan Thomas ever wrote that poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into the Good Night, Sir Walter Scott wrote about death in this way. He said, O mighty death, those whom none other could convince, thou hast persuaded. Those whom all others flattered, Thou hast despised, thou hast fetched all greatness, all the pride, all the cruelty, power, and ambition of humanity, and covered it all over with these two little words. Here lies. Here lies. That is so powerful, you see. That it brings down the most celebrated people in the world, the most powerful people in the world, the most religious people in the world, the people who never thought they would die, all of the pride of humanity, all of your aspirations, all of your accomplishments, all of mine will one day be covered over by two little words, here lies, fill in your name. Could I have started this talk out worse this morning, poetry and death? Aren't you so glad you got up this morning to come to City Church? I don't want to depress you this morning. That's not my purpose. It's just that it's impossible to understand the conclusion to Samson's story and the real thrust of his entire story without understanding the power of death. It is a stark truth, but apart from God himself, Death is the greatest power in this world, outlasting and subduing all other powers, no matter how marvelous they may seem to be for the time being. And it is this power of death that is so prominent in Samson's story. If you've been with us throughout the series, you may remember that what precipitated the story of Samson was that Israel, this special nation, nation chosen by God to be the people through whom the Savior of the world would come, this special nation was willingly, without resistance, being assimilated into the Philistine culture. They are on the verge of national extinction. Which if it happens, there is no Jewish Messiah, there is no Jesus, there is no salvation for you, me, or anyone else, there is no city church, there is no church at all. 
And so out of faithfulness to his promise to send a Messiah, God intervenes and announces that a barren woman is going to have a son who is going to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But apart from those supernatural events surrounding his birth and the high hopes that we had for Samson then, think about something if you've been with us throughout this series. Everything else about Samson's story has been blanketed by a thick black pall of death. He is born in chapter 13, and then in chapter 14 he kills a lion, and then he killed Philistines, and then he killed foxes to kill Philistine crops, and then his Philistine ex-fiancee was killed because of him along with her father, and then Samson used the jawbone of a dead donkey to kill more Philistines. Death, death, and more death. Everything Samson touches turned to death turns to death. And it only gets worse here. Now, at the end of Samson's life. When we pick up the storyline this morning, Samson's latest Philistine lover, Delilah, has literally, as Dustin pointed out last week, sold Samson out to the Philistine army in a money grab. I want to read one of the last verses from last week's passage. Chapter 16, verse 21. It says, Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. Now stop there for just a moment. I don't know if you realize this, but speaking of literature, even though there are many secular experts in literature who do not believe the Bible, the Bible is still considered to be, by those secular experts, one of the greatest works of literature in human history. And verse 21 is an example of why. In this one verse, in this one verse, I count at least five different ironies. Let me list them for you. Number one, the deliverer from the Philistines is now a prisoner of the Philistines. This man who destroyed Philistine fields of grain is now grinding Philistine grain. This man who loved Philistine women is now doing Philistine women's work. Grinding grain was considered in that day to be women's work. Number four, this man with supernatural power is now a powerless slave. And number five, the nation this man was to deliver, Israel, did what was right in their own eyes, the book of Judges tells us, but Israel's deliverer now has no eyes. All of these ironies are included in this one verse intentionally to punctuate the tragedy that Samson's life is. What started with such high hopes has now come to this. The deliverer of Israel is now a slave to the Philistines. Skip down to verse 23 now. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to celebrate saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste to our land and multiplied our slain. Now, I'm going to ask you to just give me a moment here, because I'm going to have to take a brief diversion here for just a moment. But I want you to, again, I want to ask you to stick with me here. And we'll get back to our story. It's just that there's some very important and fascinating backstory that you need to see to understand what's happening here. Anyone remember here the first of the Ten Commandments? 
Here it is. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, why did God command that to Israel? Well, way back in the 12th chapter of Genesis, you have this story. It's the story of a man by the name of Abraham who was from an idol-worshiping family in an idol-worshiping nation. And God speaks to this man named Abraham, and he said, leave your father's household and and go to a, a new place that I'm going to lead you, and I am going to bless you. Whoa, whoa, that was a revolutionary idea a God people could connect with who wanted to bless them and who took the initiative to do so. Why was that so revolutionary? Well, because the nations that surrounded Israel worshiped man-made gods and goddesses who were remote and didn't communicate. Why didn't they communicate? Well, because they can't communicate because they aren't real. But Abraham didn't know that. And so this would have blown Abraham away, a God who wanted a God who spoke and a God who wanted to connect with him. And when God said to Abraham, leave your father's household, you and I think, we think of a four-bedroom house and a grill, but in that day, in that day, your father was the one who taught you how to navigate the forces that controlled the rain and the the crops and fertility and, and other things that you were dependent upon. Needed to rain? Your father taught you. Here's how to get the rain God on your side. And so your father's household, you see, was your father's idols, his gods, and the way that you had to navigate those gods. How do you navigate man-made gods? How do you do that? Well, you have to appease them. You build an altar, and you make sacrifices. What do you sacrifice? And how much do you sacrifice? Well, you never knew how much to sacrifice. So there was always anxiety and guilt surrounding these man-made gods. Maybe we haven't done enough. Maybe we should have done more. The gods were never satisfied. But one thing was certain. Ultimately, the only acceptable sacrifice was the thing most precious, human life. And so the gods demanded blood sacrifices. The only question was how much blood. But this God that spoke to Abraham said something very different. Leave the false idols behind and I am going to bless you. And Abraham does so. And eventually Abraham had a son. And there is this horrendous story in Genesis chapter 22 in which God says to Abraham, take your one and your only son Isaac who you love and see if this sounds familiar and offer him as a sacrifice there. Kill him. Sounds just like all of the gods surrounding the nation of Israel, the man-made gods. Now here's the question, why doesn't Abraham say no? Or why doesn't he ask, how? Why is he not shocked with the idea of offering up the most precious thing in the world to him? It's because to Abraham this makes sense. This is how the gods work. And so Abraham heads out to a mountain to sacrifice his son and he raises the knife. And just before he drives it into his son, God says to Abraham, stop. Don't do it. There is a ram over there stuck in the thicket. Go get it and sacrifice it instead of your son. And the whole episode ends with a Hebrew word that means this God provides. God was making a point to Abraham. 
Abraham, you are used to gods that demand that you appease them. Your fundamental posture toward the gods is, what do I have to do? What do I have to give the gods to appease them? But I am a God who desires to bless you, and in order to do so, I will provide the sacrifice rather than you having to provide. And so you see, this is why God commanded Israel not to worship false gods. Because false gods are always man-made gods who can never be satisfied and always demand blood. And so cultures who worship false gods are always cultures of death. Make a note of this, because I'm going to refer to it again in just a moment. But the real idol, secreted behind all other idols, is death. The real idol secreted behind all other idols is death. Israel was to be different. Israel was to be a culture who worshiped the true and living God, a God who is good, a God who longs to bless, a God who is gracious, a God who would provide the sacrifice for man's sins, a God who did not have to be appeased, a God with whom you could be at peace, unlike all the nations all around them for whom violence and human bloodshed and infanticide and slavery were a standard part of everyday life. Now back to our story. Israel is willingly and without resistance being assimilated into this culture of death. Notice how verse 23 begins again. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God. And to celebrate, saying, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. Dagon was only one of the Philistine gods, believed to be the God who controlled the grain harvests. So no coincidence that here they are in the temple of Dagon, and the sacrifice that they're getting ready to offer is a blood sacrifice. The one who destroyed their grain harvest, Samson. In verse 25, before they kill him, they asked for Samson to be brought out to entertain them. Normally, that meant that the prisoner would be stripped naked and jeered at and humiliated in front of the crowd. In verse 26, Samson, now blind, asks to be allowed, to be led, to lean upon the pillars that support the temple of Dagon. Let's read verse 27. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Verse 29, then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And that seems fitting, doesn't it? That the man who spent most of his life flirting with the Philistines instead of delivering Israel from the Philistines would choose to die with the Philistines. Text says, then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple and the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed Many more when he died than while he lived. And the question is, what in the world are we to make of all of this? What are we to 
walk away with as we wrap up this series on the life and the death of Samson. I said earlier, it's impossible to understand the real thrust of Samson's story without understanding the power of death. Make a note of this somewhere. Death is, death is both our physical destination and our psychological instinct. You need to make a note of that somewhere. Death is both our ultimate physical destination and our psychological instinct. First part of that is probably more clear than the last physically. From the time we are born, death is always pulling us toward it. It is, an, it is our inevitable destination. But it is also our psychological instinct. And what I mean by that is that on the one hand, we are repulsed by the idea of death, but on the other hand, we are instinctively drawn towards it. Because like the Philistines, like the people of Israel, we instinctively, without ever having to be taught to do it, we instinctively place our hopes and our dreams in created things rather than the creator. And those created things become for us gods, idols, that we must have because we would rather die than live without them. And so we will sacrifice anything and anyone to get them. And we will keep sacrificing anything and anyone. Why? Why? Because idols can never satisfy, nor can they ever be satisfied. They always demand more sacrifice. We said it a moment ago. The real idol secreted behind all other idols is death. And that's the power of death, you see. Its magnetic power pulls us physically and psychologically toward it from the day that we were born until it destroys us. That's what we see in Samson's story. Despite his special calling from the true and living God, death was always psychologically pulling Samson toward the idolatrous culture of the Philistines. Samson was way more fascinated by and shaped by the culture of the Philistines than he was with delivering Israel from it. Listen to me, listen to me about this. Listen to me on this. You need to hear this. Cultures who worship false gods are always cultures of violence, degradation, and disregard for human life. They're always cultures who worship false gods are always cultures of violence, degradation, and disregard for human life. Can you see how Samson was shaped by that kind of culture? I mean, every time Samson used power, he used it to kill every time. We so want Samson's story to end with him being a hero, but even in his death, Samson used the power that God gave him for revenge, murder. He never once used his power with the idea of delivering even a single Israelite. Power was always used for death. Samson used women for his sexual gratification at their expense. The Philistines used money to capture Samson. Delilah used Samson and his unrestrained sex drive for her profit. Sex, money, and power. All good gifts from God, but in an idolatrous culture, used as instruments of death and degradation. That's the power of death, you see. It was always pulling at Samson psychologically, despite his calling from God. 
And so in his life, death was always surrounding Samson. And when death finally had its ultimate way with Samson, even in his death, Samson brought more death. Death is both our physical destination as well as our, psychologically in, our psychological instinct. It is, its magnetic power is always pulling us toward it. To turn created things into gods until they destroy us and everyone around us. Cultures who worship false gods are always cultures of violence, degradation, and disregard for human life. I don't mean to suggest that there is nothing positive about Western culture, but does violence, degradation, and disregard for human life sound familiar to you? Pornography is both degrading and often violent. Poverty is degrading. Racism is degrading. Misogyny is degrading. Abortion is violent and disregards human life. We must have sex in any way we want it, at any time we want it, with whomever we want it. We must have it. We're fascinated in our culture with violence. Seriously, what would we have for entertainment if we didn't have sex and violence? I'm in trouble now, aren't I? Yeah. And we fight furiously over power. Republicans despise Democrats, and Democrats despise Republicans. Socialists despise capitalists, and capitalists despise socialists. It's almost as if you could say that like Samson's life, American culture is blanketed by a thick, black pall of death. One thing we see from Samson's story is that death is our destination. But it is also our instinct. It is the real idol secreted behind all other idols. But that's not the end of the story. Oh, it's the end of Samson's story. But it's not the end of the story. Because there's a second thing that we should walk away from Samson's stories with, and that is the supremacy of God over Dagon and death. In their jubilance over Samson's capture, the Philistines make the fatal mistake of pitting Dagon against the true and living God. They praised Dagon, saying that he, Dagon, had delivered Samson into their hands. The irony, of course, is that it wasn't Dagon who delivered Samson to them. It was God who had delivered over Samson in order to rescue the people of Israel. God used an impetuous, lustful, emotionally crippled deliverer who didn't want to be a deliverer in the first place to declare his supremacy over Dagon and the Philistine culture of death. Samson never acted to to deliver one Israelite from the Philistines. Yet through Samson, God left no question as to the identity of the true and the living God and no question who was the victor over Dagon and death. God used Samson to begin to deliver Israel, not in the political sphere necessarily, that would, wait, that would have to wait until King David some time later, but in the theological sphere. 
He used Samson to begin to deliver Israel. The ensuing spectacle of death and devastation in Dagon's own temple, no less, was an embarrassment for Dagon and for all those who worshipped him in the ancient Near East. The words of praise for their God must have died coldly on the lips of the rich and the powerful Philistines in attendance at his temple that day. And the people of Israel could see in the rubble of Dagon's temple that the, all the death and the futility of the worthless Philistine idols and the supremacy of the God who had called them and had chosen them to be the people through whom the world would be delivered from sin. The defeat of Dagon is to point us also to the supremacy of God over death. Yes, I said earlier, apart from God himself, death is the greatest power in this world. But make no mistake, God has supremacy over the power of death. The prophet Isaiah, one of Israel's prophets, spoke of a day that was still in his future. And he wrote this, listen, he said, Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Notice the language. He will swallow up death forever. The apostle Paul quotes this verse in the New Testament. Taunting death writing, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Paul writes elsewhere with the echoes of Dagon's defeat in his words, saying that when he, God, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through who? Through Christ. We do not have to fear the power of death because we have been delivered by God. Like God delivered Israel from the Philistines, we have been delivered from the fearsome reign of death by God. God has supremacy not only over Dagon, but over death itself. That's something we should walk away from this story of Samson with. But then there's a last thing. There's a last thing. A final thing. God's victory over Dagon and death, we should see, is achieved through the death of the deliverer. Samson's death is intended to point us to our true deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. The true Israelite, who in his strength handed himself over to be blinded and bound, mocked and ridiculed, and in his dying destroyed the power of death, and in his resurrection restored the guarantee of life. Samson, Samson toppled the God of the Philistines, but Jesus drove out the prince of the power of this world. Samson died to kill out of revenge, but Jesus died to rescue out of love. On the cross, the message of God to Abraham was finally realized in the sacrifice of Christ. This God provides the one and the only sacrifice for sin. And one day, every tongue, every nation, every supposed power in this world will bow at the name of Jesus. 
Listen to how the book of Hebrews describes the work of Jesus. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Delivered by our champion from the fearsome reign of death, we are now free to resist its psychological pull to worship man-made gods and to worship the true and the living God. We have been set free, City Church. We have been set free, City Church, to embody in our life together the positive sign of life lived under the reign of the Lord of life through his triumph over the grave and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Christ is fashioning us, the people of City Church, to be an outpost of the kingdom of life amidst a culture of death. That's our vision, to bring life to the city of Evansville and beyond through a movement of people who are being transformed by the gospel of the life of the true and living God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the victor over death. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, in this moment, I pray that I pray that you would open hearts. First, I pray that you would open hearts of those who are here this morning that may never have come to a place where they have placed their trust, their faith in you, the one and only sacrifice. You are the God who provides the one and only sacrifice for sin. You, Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for human sin. You didn't ask us to appease you. You appeased yourself by dying for us. And I pray, Lord, for people here today who have never understood that, who maybe still be thinking that, you know, I've got to, I've got to live for God. I've got to, I've got to please God. I've got to earn his favor. Or maybe they're beaten down and they feel like the things they've done could never earn your favor. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would assure them this morning that you, you, are the God who provides the one and the only sacrifice for human sin. You paid it all. And I pray for people this morning who've never believed in you, that they would open their heart to you this morning and that they would place their faith in you and that they would move from a, from a culture of death into a kingdom of life. Lord, for those of us who have placed our faith in you, Would you open our hearts this morning and gently convict us of the places in our lives, Lord, where we have been shaped more by a culture of death than by your kingdom of life? And would you gently convict us? And would you be moving us? Would you be changing us? Would you be building in us the same love that Jesus Christ demonstrated when he died for humanity on a Roman cross? Would you be increasing our love for the people around us? Changing us to be agents of love in a culture of death. We worship you this morning, Lord Jesus, because you are the victor. You are our hero. You are our champion. You are our deliverer. 
who died for people who did not deserve it, for me, for everyone here, for all of humanity. You willingly gave yourself for people who didn't deserve it. And we thank you for that grace, our victor, our champion, our hero, our deliverer, you, Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray today. Amen. Well, the ushers now are gonna take the offering and if you're new to City Church, we'd really just appreciate it if you'd put that uh, connect card in the uh, offering bucket so that we can know that you were here today. And then Nathaniel and the band are gonna close us out with a final song reminding us that Jesus, Jesus paid it all. God is the one who provides. And then Dustin Kranz will come up and he will close us out.